Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Judd Devermont. I am the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. This is a podcast where we talk politics and challenge paradigms. On deck today, France is pulling out of the Sahel. Who will backfill the French counterterrorism force? And there's a heated debate about ADF's links to the Islamic State in Eastern Congo. What does it mean for regional and international responses? Plus, we discuss franchising terrorism in Africa. How do we avoid overemphasizing or underemphasizing the links between regional groups and global jihadi networks? So whether you have a history with the continent or you're a newcomer, we want to get you into Africa. French President Macron has announced the end of Operation Barkhane in the Sahel. What does a French withdrawal mean for countering extremism in the region? Joining me to discuss the Sahel and other topics are Anwar Bukhars, Professor of Counterterrorism and Countering Violent Extremism at the African Center for Strategic Studies, known as ACSS, Jason Warner, Assistant Professor at the U.S. Military Academy in West Point and Associate in the Combating Terrorism Center, and Emily Estelle, a research fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, also known as AEI, and a research manager of AEI's Critical Threats Project. Just to note, our guests here are representing their personal views, not of their institutions or of the U.S. government. Okay, in June, President Macron said his country's counterterrorism mission in the Sahel, known as Operation Barkhane, would start winding down. Tonight, President Emmanuel Macron announces a future reduction of France's military operations in the Sahel, saying that France's existing Barkhane force needs profound transformation. But in reality, there's more questions here than answers. For example, how many of the 5,000 troops would depart? What would happen to its networks of bases in the Sahel? Are the other security actors, including the UN, the European Union Task Force to Cuba and its training mission, and regional governments as part of the G5 joint force, are they ready to replace the French? And of course, how will extremist groups, JNM and ISIS Greater Sahara, how will they exploit this dynamic? Anwar, what is your sense on why the French made this announcement? Is it window dressing ahead of the elections, an acknowledgement perhaps that the challenges of operating in the Sahel are too steep or, or something else? I mean, it's certainly an acknowledgement of the challenges, you know, of operating in the Sahel. I mean, amid a worsening political and security crisis in the region, it's undoubtedly a reflection of growing fatigue among the French public, among Sahelian populations and other international stakeholders. I mean, Macron also wanted, I think, to create the impression of a radical change in policy. I mean, by announcing the, the end of the operation, a profound transformation of the French presence, Macron, as one recent report in, I think, political put it, wanted to send multiple messages to different audiences, to the French public, to the Sahel, to the United States, and to European partners. So with French elections looming, Macron, signal to his, you know, domestic audience that France will begin disengaging from a long-running and winnable war. The French public has soared on a war effort that has cost, you know, over $700 million a year, and that many French believe that the war's costs have exceeded its benefits. So 
And when you look at recent polls, they have shown that majorities of the public, they are against France staying in, in the Sahel. But despite, as you rightly noted, Macron's desire to disengage, you know, and, and public discontent with the ongoing operation, the announced drawdown does not mean that Paris is, is leaving the Sahel. I mean, the region where it still wants to maintain its influence. And in any case, Macron's plan entails bringing down the number of French troops in the Sahel reportedly by about 50% over the next two years. And to Africans, the message is, hey, France's long-term presence, you know, in the external military operations, as he said it, cannot be a substitute for the return of the state, for the public services, for political stability, etc. To France allies, international allies, the goal of the drawdown is to signal that they can't rely indefinitely on the French, right, as the center of gravity in the region without increasing European contribution, without increasing international contributions. So to wrap it up, Macron's hope or ambition is to try to Europeanize the effort because so far the new European task force, the uh, known as Takuba, which was established as you know last year to train and advise African counterterrorism forces, has been supported by only you know the Czechs, Estonia, and and Sweden. And in any case, the backbone of that force you know remains French anyway. So. France is trying to get more Europeans as well as Americans, you know, involved in, in, in that fight. Okay, Jason, Anwar says, right, that Macron is trying to signal that the regional governments and international partners can't rely exclusively on the French. So I guess the question is, are they prepared to take a greater chunk of the responsibilities? Do they have the capacity and the will? And where is the United States going to be in all of this? You interviewed AFRICOM Special Operations Commander Brigadier General Anderson last year, and he, he talked about how important the U.S. role, limited as it is, plays in supporting France. You know, in your view, like what happens next? Can these different multilateral and bilateral peacekeeping and counterterrorism missions actually step up if the French are, in theory, stepping down? So it's a great question, and I think the unsatisfying answer is uh, it's to be determined. With Macron's announcement of the withdrawal of Barkhane or the drawdown of Barkhane, there were statements that what the future would look like in terms of the nature of engagements between MINUSMA, Task Force Takuba, G5 Sahel states would be is to be determined. And so what this all looks like when it all shakes out is really unclear at the moment, I think, from my perspective. I think those folks who are really looking at what's going on and analyzing what the future might be really see some signs for hope in that what has been going on hasn't worked in essence. I think that there's some nuance to be made to that argument, but in general, the outcomes of Barkhane have really been unsatisfying. And so with a resetting of what the nature of relationships and responsibilities are between all of these actors, there's hope that the entire region can have a resetting of how these actors interact with one another to include, I think most forcefully, a refocus on governance, stabilization, and a lesser focus on counterterrorism efforts kinetically. In terms of the United States' role in all of this, the United States has really, uh, historically, especially in the Sahel, taken a backseat to France. Of course, um, given its colonial linkages with the Sahelian states, not only has France sought to really assert its predominance in the security sphere in that region, but the United States has been more or less willing to let it do that precisely because the United States has other 
hotspots on the continent in which it's already engaged, most notably against al-Shabaab in Somalia. And so the French desire to sort of take the lead combined with the U.S. willingness to let it take that lead has really made the United States uh, sort of watch, I think, sometimes not wholly satisfied with how this fight has gone. I'll just note that to the extent that the U.S. is being questioned as to whether or not it will have a greater role in the region, I think it's important to note, of course, that the United States is shifting away from a focus on counterterrorism and and the threats posed by international Salafi jihadist groups as it shifts to a focus on near-peer competition. And so it seems unlikely that the United States, barring a really sort of catastrophic outcome, would really seek to reinsert itself as a more forceful player in the region. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. And it's a a trite Washington expression, but it's still early days to make sense of both the Macron announcement as well as what the U.S. may do. I'll just note, Jason, that on July 8th, when President Biden made his speech about the Afghan withdrawal, he said something or tweeted something that I thought was interesting. And I don't expect to have great insights on it, but he said, We are repositioning our resources to meet terrorist threats where they are now, across South Asia, the Middle East, and Africa. So that caught my attention because I agree with you that there seems to be an overall shift towards great power competition, near-peer competition, and a walking away from you know the counterterrorism threat. So I was surprised about that statement, and I guess we'll figure out soon enough what that actually means. But Emily, let me go to you because JNM, ISIS, they get a vote in this, right? So do you see new gains for these groups? How do you think they will try to exploit Macron's announcement, either for propaganda or recruitment? Will the security situation, this is what everyone wants to know, right? Will the security situation worsen if the French reduce their troops' presence? It's a tricky question to answer, and some of what Jason said gets after this, where you know I am apprehensive about where the security situation will go should the French leave or, you know, depending on how the counterterrorism forces transform. But at the same time, many analysts share the assessment that the French CT mission hasn't delivered what was hoped for and that if there's an opportunity to transform that engagement and put some more focus on the governance piece that's been missing instead of the pure military focus, then that is an opportunity. Unfortunately, I don't really see indicators that that's where we're headed. I see instead more of a a handoff to continue the same kind of strategy as far as focusing on security. The other piece that's complicated is, right, we can talk a lot about what governance, what aid programs are needed to basically try and undercut the JNIM or ISIS insurgencies, but without sufficient security to deliver those programs or for the countries in question to be able to even attempt to improve governance in some of those parts of their territory, I don't really see how we get there. So my concern is that JNIM and ISIS are already fairly strong and expanding in some ways, even with the CT pressure as it is. So the biggest problem for ISIS in the last year has been fighting with JNIM, and that's lifted to an extent such that the ISIS group has gotten increasingly active again. JNIM is pretty well entrenched through its components across multiple parts of Mali, has been expanding in some ways, particularly in, in central Mali and north of the capital. And so I would expect to see that continue. I don't necessarily expect that we would see like a bold or brash kind of explosion of al-Qaeda or ISIS activity should the French withdraw, in part because JNIM especially and its predecessors have, have learned the lesson of 
raising the flag too quickly or too audaciously and inviting that pressure in response, I think we're more likely to see more of a kind of under the radar approach focused on the group's core objectives, which are you know, taking control of governance and installing themselves as the power in many of these parts of Mali. The other piece you, you mentioned on propaganda, this is already showing up in JNM propaganda. The way that they're framing it is to talk about kind of waiting to see what the next version of the French occupation will be. So kind of playing on skepticism that the French will will actually leave. And so that's something to watch as far as how the continued French or European engagement is going to be perceived by parts of the population. The last thing on, on Sahel, just to raise it, that we haven't mentioned is that the Malian government hasn't been in a you know, particularly stable place with the initial coup in August and then the more recent events. And so the question of, kind of improving governance and improving the Malian local capability is coming at a, a particularly fraught time where there's a lot of frustration from all sides about the kind of lack of progress on the political front. So fairly pessimistic assessment, unfortunately, but that's where I see things headed. Yeah, I mean, it takes a true optimist to see green shoots right now in the Sahel. But I, I'm glad, Emily, that you mentioned Mali, because one of the things that the French initially did after the second coup is to suspend any joint operations with the Malians. It took about a month and then they decided, well, actually, they were going to resume all those military operations with the Malians. So they have been inconsistent on both what their posture is going to be and then how they're going to sort of work with this government that has become more and more a military government following the decision of Colonel Goita to get rid of all the civilians at the top of the Malian government. Anwar, I, I want to end this first section with you and Jason and Emily set you up so nicely because we were both of them have talked about how do you get the balance between security and governance and development right. And I think we would all agree that you have to address the underlying drivers of violence in this region. And and maybe you could just share a little bit on your assessment on how the international community, regional governments are doing on this issue. And is the French announcement an opportunity, a prompt to rethink our overall approach? Sure. I mean, the persistence of an expansion of violent extremism in the Sahel, I mean, definitely necessitates a rethink of national, regional, and international responses. And one of the most important lessons, as we have heard so far from Jason and Estelle, is that, you know, that we have gleaned from nearly a decade of counter-terrorist operations is that military operations alone cannot stop the spread of violent extremism. So today, everybody is disappointed with the results of this military-heavy approach pursued by France and its local allies. And as a one recent uh, crisis group report put it, I mean, the Sahel stabilization strategy led by France whose goal is to stabilize the region with investments and in security, you know, in development and governance is, is, is foundering amid a rise in communal killings and, uh, and violent extremism, as well as eroding public confidence in the region's governments. I mean, look at the June 2021 massacre of more than 160 people in the Burkinabi village of Salham that showed the tragic consequences, I mean, for civilians who are increasingly coming under multiple concurrent assaults in a variety of deteriorating security environments in the Sahel. So what we are seeing is the proliferation of non-state armed actors, as well as heavy-handed counterterrorism operations. They have aggravated existing tensions between states and communities. They have deepened communal cleavages, and they have contributed to a devastating increase 
in anti-civil environments, especially in peripheral rural areas. When you look at just the last year alone, I mean, violent extremists, self-defense groups, state armed forces that are frequently allied with local militias, they have devastated several villages in Mali, Niger, Burkina Faso in cyclical episodes of tit-for-tat killings. And these unprecedented atrocities they carried into this year, 2021, with violent extremist groups perpetrating some of the deadliest attacks against civilians. Unfortunately, national and foreign anti-terrorist forces, you know, also continue to be implicated in mistaken or deliberate targeting of civilians. So the trajectory of this downward spiral of violence is pretty much the same, whether you look at Mali, whether you look at Burkina Faso, you know, and then elsewhere. You've got rising communal tensions, right, around land and natural resources, that are often triggered by socioeconomic changes and environmental degradations, as well as that crisis of governance. All of this have created the conditions that are conducive to the emergence and proliferation of armed groups. And violent extremist groups have shrewdly exploited, you know, inter and intra communal rivalries over resources and rights, as well as rising frustrations with government's perceived misrule to expand their influence across communal lines. So, as several reports have noted, the international community should reorient its approach to one that prioritizes governance, to one that tries harder to attenuate or to calm the escalating tensions among communities and between communities in the state, especially in rural areas, which violent extremist groups exploit. And the international community, they should redouble efforts to improve or to help, including states themselves, obviously, to improve government's delivery of basic services to, to citizens. So there has to be a push to improve the behavior of governments and of governments, because insecurity and violent extremism thrives on the failure of governance, including in the security sector. And finally, it, it's nearly impossible to tackle the problem of violent extremism in the peripheral areas of the Sahel without governments filling the major gaps in security and, and service provision. So to answer your question, I mean, yes, the international community is, is frustrated and is aware that they have to reorient the, the approach, whether that, that, would, that would happen or would that work? That's, that's another question. I just wanted to jump in there because I think Anwar made such a, an amazing series of points. Uh, you know, the connection between the need for better governance and how to approach the security campaign is worth drawing out. One of the drivers of support for JNM and, and ISIS and other groups in the Sahel is the fact that security force abuses against the population are a really serious problem too, and, and people are caught in the middle whether it's official security forces or you know community militias and the cycle of violence and the jihadist groups that play off of that. And so something that doesn't get discussed enough, but I know Judd wrote about it recently, is the need for support for justice structures and, and rule of law to actually deal with the violence that's happening and move it towards a, a conclusion and a resolution. So that's something else that when we talk about security assistance, we should also be thinking about the structures surrounding it that make security assistance beyond military capability actually effective for these societies. Just wanted to throw that one out there because it doesn't always get looped into this conversation. No, I'm, I'm really glad that you did. And I couldn't agree more with uh, Anwar and you on, on some of those points. And obviously, thank you for the plug. We've written three pieces on the Sahel. We'll put all of that in the show notes, as well as the International Crisis Group article that Anwar mentioned. Why don't we move to our next 
topic, which is Eastern Congo. There's been a surge of violence there. In fact, so much so that President Chitsukedi declared a state of siege in May. He replaced the provincial governments of Ituri and North Kivu with either military or police officers. And this has been a response to both communal violence and Mai Mai militias, but of course, the allied democratic forces, also known as ADF. And this is where it gets interesting and where we're so lucky to have our guests because there's this very heated debate about whether ADF, it's a decades-old Ugandan group that moved into eastern Congo in about the 90s, and whether or not this group is truly part of the Islamic State, or at least how closely linked they are. Another attack in a village near the city of Beni in the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo. Villagers say victims were shot and stabbed. Government officials believe attacks by the Allied Democratic Forces, or ADF, a group believed to be linked to ISIL, is responsible for several attacks in the area. So both the ADF and the Islamic State have made statements about their ties as part of ISIS Central Africa province. And the Congo Research Group in 2018 noted that ADF has received money from ISIS. The UN group of experts, on the other hand, in June said there's no conclusive evidence that ISIS has command or control over ADF, nor that ISIS gives support to the ADF, either financial, human, or material. Jason, this previews our final conversation, but do you want to go through the arguments for and against the ties between ADF and ISIS? Yeah, certainly. So, you know, I think what we're seeing with this debate that you rightly, uh, Judd, note is incredibly contentious. This is really sort of the latest iteration of a sort of structuring debate, I think, really, that has marked the study and analysis of African jihadist groups with transnational affiliations to either al-Qaeda or the Islamic State. And so while historically the groups that have gotten the most attention in this sort of structured debate around the relative importance of links with transnational jihadist groups, historically this has been Boko Haram or ISWAP and to a lesser extent al-Shabaab. But today, as you know, really the contentious debates relate to the ADF or Islamic State Central Africa Province, ISCAP DRC. And so we'll probably use those terms interchangeably. So there are really two sides to this that really sort of need to meet in the middle at some point. So there are those who have made the point that it is truly wrongheaded for the international community and particularly the United States through its FTO designation of the ADF as a foreign terrorist organization, to think about the ADF as an ISIS or an Islamic State branch. And so the folks that tend to come from this perspective are those who I think have critiques that are rooted in a genuine concern about what labeling means for policy in action. Their main critique is that by referring to the ADF as ISCAP, DRC, that observers and policymakers will have their judgment clouded by, and Emily and I used this term recently, ISIS myopia, right? This idea that by having even a slight connection to the Islam, every approach towards that group is therefore funneled through the lens of its Islamic State connection. And so there have been a series of, of dissidents who seek to sort of say either that these connections don't exist at all, or that there might be some links, but they're only propaganda. And so some of the common arguments that we hear are, well, ISCAP DRC can't really be an Islamic State province because the Islamic State Central 
their command and control, to which most people, to include myself, would say the Islamic State Central hasn't exerted command and control in whole over any of its provinces in Africa or otherwise. The other sort of challenge that people bring to the fore is that Jashikadi is using this Islamic State claim of the group for his own personal ends. On one hand, they say that he's using this to try to extract greater international, but particularly U.S. counterterrorism assistance, but on the other, to enable himself to clamp down on these unruly provinces in uh, the East. And so that's sort of the gist of the folks who say, look, don't get clouded by either non-existent links that the ADF has to the Islamic State or the extremely weak links that they have. And at the end of the day, I will just emphasize, these come from genuine concerns about the humanitarian impacts, right? That they don't want policy to come about that is unnuanced, that is only kinetic, and that only looks at the ADF through the lens of the Islamic State connection. All right, so that's one side of this. The other side, though, are the folks who, in my mind, have done their due diligence, I would say, in showing that these links between the ADF and the Islamic State Central are real. And there have been a number of folks who, who have worked on this, but I think really the program on extremism, George Washington University, who put out a report detailing what is known about the linkages, uh, really has shown the case that links do exist, right? They've shown that financial links exist. They've shown that media links exist. They've shown that to a lesser extent, advisory capacities exist. And so just to sum this up, two questions that sort of percolate in this debate. The first is a binary question. Does the ADF have connections to the Islamic State Central? On that front, the evidence is, yeah, there's something there. The second question is not binary, but rather a question of degree. To what extent and how deep are these links? And what do these links mean? And so I think where the debate gets hung up is that some are not even willing to concede that links even exist, right? That this binary question for them is still up in the air. I think that that has been solved. That's been resolved. We now need to say links exist. What do they mean? Actually, that's a lot where my thinking is, right? Cards on the table. Sometimes I think this argument and debate is pretty academic because if I was a policymaker, my biggest question would be, what are they doing on the ground and how do we respond to it? And, you know, the ISIS connection may enhance what they do. It may be more ephemeral. But for me, we have to start with what are they doing on the ground and how do we respond to it? And we can work through these questions as well. But I feel sometimes it's a distraction, not because it's not important, but because we waste valuable time fighting over a binary question, as you said, Jason, or sort of how deep are the connections and not saying, what are the things that we need to do to address the insecurity? But, you know, that's my opinion. And I probably spent more time thinking about it when it comes to Mozambique. But I don't know, Emily, where are you on this debate? So Jason laid out the debate super well. And I am also in the camp where I'm convinced by the argument that the links are there both for the DRC group and in Mozambique. But I, yeah, I do think that we're kind of getting stuck on the periphery of the problem in some sense, where whether or not to designate a group as an FTO, and more importantly, whether to kind of use the authorities that that then unlocks is one question. But the bigger question of how to approach these kinds of insurgencies is one that is not answered and is fundamentally the trickier problem kind of whether or not 
this was a group that was linked to the Islamic State or not. And those links are important for kind of evaluating the group's intent and also the potential for an international threat. And that brings in other players. So it does matter. But the question of defeating the insurgency and who is responsible for that, who has the capability to do that and what that looks like as far as kind of ending the military threat and bringing in like acceptable governance across this big part of northern Mozambique. That's the big question that no one knows how to answer. And I think part of it is that coming from using an extremely broad we, but from those who have been working on and observing counterterrorism wars and counterterrorism efforts for a while, in some sense, I think we're still stuck with what the whole community is more comfortable with, which is you know disrupting networks and all the different tools that we have to do that really well. And the thornier question of how you actually deal with the insurgency piece is difficult. And I do think I understand the impetus on the part of analysts who are very concerned about the policy outcome they would get by recognizing the group as part of a larger organization, be it ISIS or Al-Qaeda. But I think we have to be careful to not let the analysis be pulled around by the policy debate. It's two separate things where you have to make the assessment first and then make the argument. And the bigger argument is about whether or not we have an effective counterterrorism policy, which I think most people agree that no one has really landed on the, the perfect approach to that. So, you know, I've looked at Mozambique more and the debate around the FTO designation has been interesting, but some of the concerns around it, including that the Mozambican government is kind of trying to draw this or portray it as a, a foreign threat rather than a Mozambican problem, that started way before any U.S. designation. And I'm skeptical of a U.S. perspective really changing that dynamic. To sum up, my general perspective is that a role the U.S. can play that's useful is putting out really clear assessments of what we actually think is going on. So if we think a group is part of the Islamic State, then yes. But if we recognize that the group has roots in a lot of local problems, we have to talk about that too, even though that's not always been the case because it makes the partnership relationship difficult with some of the countries that are dealing with these issues. So that's the needle that I don't think we've figured out how to thread yet. And these two more recent Central Africa province discussions have really brought that forward. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Let's just share what we know. And it's okay if the picture is a little cloudy and having a background in analysis, you never have all the answers. And you know that there's usually no clear cut way to describe how a group or individual is acting because they are inspired by and working towards different objectives. But I I think that's the place we have to start I'm inclined to open up a can of worms with the FTO designation, but I'm going to hold back because we've got some other things to say. But I I would just recommend that folks look at what we wrote about the FTO designation for Mozambique. Some of the things that I think Emily and Jason have talked about in terms of how a government may or may not use it. But I would just say that often not talked about is how limiting the FTO designation is in terms of really opening up new authorities and how constraining it can be when you want to do some of the stuff on the back end, like humanitarian response or DDR. But perhaps for another podcast, I want to go to our final topic, which is about franchising terrorism. Jason, I'm going to make you do some heavy lifting again here. And it's your fault because you wrote a great Washington Post uh, monkey cage blog entitled The Islamic State Has Provinces in Africa That Doesn't Mean What You Might Think. So walk us through the main points. Sure. I appreciate the kind words. So um, self-plug here. Myself and a few colleagues uh, have a book coming out 
on the Islamic State in Africa, which we've been working on for a little over three years. And so we really came to the question of the Islamic State's presence in Africa in 2017 and 2018. And we're trying to figure out how did the Islamic State implant itself on the continent? How did its various provinces emerge? How did they evolve? And sort of importantly, what are the degree of connections to the Islamic State Central and how meaningful are those connections? So a lot of the stuff that we just talked about in the past segment related to the ADF and IS Central are some of the central questions really of the book. And in fact, really inspired the Washington Post piece, Judd, that you referenced. And so really what that piece argued was that when we're looking at the violence that these Islamic State provinces in Africa are undertaking, whether it's in DRC, in Mozambique, in Somalia, in Sinai, in Libya, in Algeria, in the Sahel, or in the Lake Chad Basin, we really have to have a clear understanding of what it means to be an Islamic State province in Africa or otherwise. And so really one of the main points that I, I tried to make is that when people seek to deny that an African insurgent group is an Islamic State province, because the Islamic State Central does not have direct command and control of that group, that misses the point completely about what the nature of the relationship between African provinces and the Islamic State Central has always been and has really been expected to be. So essentially in the book, we, we use a term that I personally find to be useful to describe the nature of the relationship between Islamic State provinces in Africa and the Islamic State Central. And that term is sovereign subordinates. So essentially what we're arguing is that after these groups become provinces of the Islamic State, they've really been sovereign, right? They've been, for the vast majority of their trajectory, they've been able to do what they want to do, even though ostensibly and on paper, they're subordinate to the Islamic State Central. So although these African provinces have a tremendous amount of agency as to how they conduct their daily business, that doesn't mean that they're not actually Islamic State provinces. And so a second sort of major point that I try to pull out here is just because the Islamic State Central doesn't have direct command and control of these provinces doesn't mean that these African insurgent groups or provinces aren't the real legitimate representatives of the Islamic State on the African continent. And the sort of linchpin to all of this is that when an African insurgent group pledges bayah or allegiance to the Islamic State Central and the Islamic State Central acknowledges that bayah, that group is the Islamic State Central's representative on the continent. Now, again, simply because it cannot directly control the daily actions of that group doesn't mean that that affiliation, A, doesn't exist, and B, that the sort of formal organizational title of province becomes moot. And so that all said, the third sort of major point in this piece was really to emphasize that despite the fact that these really are the Islamic State's representatives on the continent, everyone on both sides of this debate that we've been talking about shouldn't get hung up on the Islamic Stateness, either trying to minimize it or trying to maximize it. And so on one hand, we really shouldn't assume that groups that are Islamic State provinces are inherently more threatening. Many of them don't have strong links with the Islamic State Central. And of course, as we've discussed, overemphasizing connections with the Islamic State can lead to really poor decisions in terms of counterterrorism. But on the other hand, we really should not seek to minimize what it means to be an Islamic State province. Precisely because these groups pledged allegiance and the Islamic State accepted it, 
this shows that both sides value this relationship and it informs how these groups kind of move about in the world, how they portray their ideology, how they carry out violence, sometimes how they're funded, how they recruit, how they interact with civil society. So essentially the piece ends up sort of arguing that we should neither overemphasize nor underemphasize the extent to which the Islamic State moniker is meaningful to these African insurgent groups. Okay, Anwar, taking Jason's last point here about being careful about overemphasizing, but don't underemphasize, where does that leave policymakers? Right? We a little bit talked about this in the last section, but from your point of view, how do we get this right? Well, sure. I think Jason put it brilliantly. I mean, look, how much control does ISIS have over its African affiliates? That, that depends, obviously. In Nigeria, ISIS, you know, provided trainers and expertise. So in Mozambique, uh, it's contested. I mean, ISIS, uh, I believe, is only loosely tied to the insurgency there, which remains a a homegrown crisis. Yes, Tanzanian and other foreign nationals have joined up and they have fueled the the insurrection. But, you know, Mozambican violent extremists are motivated by grievances against the state that delivers little, little for them. So until authorities, you know, deploy aid to build trust with with locals, and in some cases, maybe even open dialogue with some of, of these groups. So we're not, we're not, going anywhere. Regional governments obviously should also redouble law enforcement efforts to block, you know, these insurgency in Mozambique from becoming truly a transnational violent extremist group. So the nature of ISIS involvement in most theaters, in any case, is often dictated by local events and by local violent extremist decisions rather than by policies that are designed in Iraq or in Syria or whatever that that where that might be. So this means that, as, as Jason said, we can't overemphasize the global connection, but we cannot obviously uh, just disregard it. Nonetheless, we can't emphasize the global you know, connection at the expense of the local context here. I mean, we have seen how violent extremist groups you know, in the Sahel, you know, they improvise, they compromise in order to adapt their doctrines and goals to rapidly shifting circumstances here. So it's the conflict environment and the local dynamics that shape the violent activities of armed actors, and in this case, violent extremist actors, but there are other providers of violence as, as we know. So understanding the context of violence is critical to explaining, you know, a, the wide variations we see in violence patterns, because they differ. And two, trying to figure out how to address the challenge. In the Sahel, we have multi-actor conflict environments, and Lake Chad Basin, by the way, too, that are marked by intense community conflicts, by strong antagonism between and among VA groups and community-based armed counterparts. That's what predicts the levels of violence, as well as heavy-handed counterterrorism operations. So again, context, the local context here is key. And until we address, you know, the root causes of what drives violence, uh, we cannot stabilize, you know, the Sahel, Lake Chad Basin, and and now what's happening in in Mozambique and, and elsewhere. This does not mean that national, regional, and international law enforcement and counterterrorism operations, they should stop efforts to stymie, you know, any support these groups might receive from ISIS Central or from other transnational violent extremist uh, groups. 
Of course, the operation should focus on stopping attempts by individuals to finance, to train, or provide new technologies, such as drones, to, to these groups. But uh, the core of it, I, I believe, it's still, you know, it's local. That's what's fueling the spike of, of, of violence and, uh, and destabilization. Well, we've all been very generous to each other by giving multiple plugs. And so to continue uh, the good feeling all around, Emily, I'm going to let you end this episode with a plug because you have a great new series with Jason and your colleague Katie Zimmerman on the role of ISIS and Al-Qaeda in Africa. I watched the first one, Swapping Jerseys, What Changes When African Extremists Join the Islamic State. It's available on your website. But preview the rest of the series and I think it's going to give you an opportunity to sort of touch back to some of Anwar's points and Jason's points in this conversation. Thanks so much, Jed. I'm really excited about this series, so so happy to talk about it. So we just kicked off a, a joint series with AEI and CTC, so with Katie and, and Jason. And what we're trying to do is create a forum to hash out exactly some of the issues we've been you know, talking through over the course of today. So the big debate being that kind of the local global tension that is very live in the analyst community right now, looking at Salafi Jihadi groups in, in Africa. So we're trying to create a space where we can actually kind of get to some useful points of understanding or really isolate what the important <laughs> points of disagreement are between those that are arguing that these groups are kind of fundamentally more local and those who are arguing that they pose a kind of larger international threat. So the first event that we just had was focused on how much it matters when an African extremist organization pledges to the Islamic State. So is it a more fundamental change? Is it more superficial? And what are the implications of that? We're considering a bunch of topics going forward, but some of the issues we plan to talk about are you know, the external threat question, you know, what are the different dynamics between Islamic State groups and Al-Qaeda groups as they manifest in, in Africa. To continue this like circle of plugging things, we'll definitely talk about Jason and his co-author's book and the question of sovereign subordinates in the larger context also of how these associates of kind of global Salafi Jihadi organizations are going to develop as the larger global movement evolves. So with the Islamic State's kind of obvious setbacks in, in Iraq and Syria and waiting for and watching whatever the next phase will look like in the Middle East for those groups. How does that interplay go with Islamic State affiliates around the world? We can ask similar questions about the global Salafi Jihadi movement and the lessons that they will take away from this stage of Afghanistan and the U.S. withdrawal, which is something that these groups are already talking about. We're definitely in a period of flux for global Salafi Jihadism, looking at potential changes in, in leadership at the top of those organizations too. So that's something that that I'm really interested in and, and would like to discuss more. And of course, we're going to debate the policy issues. So how should the U.S. and partners be addressing terrorism, including you know what should be the better approach or the replacement approach to counterterrorism policy? And in an era of near-peer competition, and you know, we've all had this discussion on great power dynamics, that's also a discussion that we absolutely need to have in this kind of new era where, to bring it back to the beginning, we talked about the U.S., we talked about France potentially withdrawing from the Sahel. The question of what policy should look like going forward is obviously something that we need to be discussing you know, I'm also working on a, a project myself looking at trying to rank and prioritize responses to threats from Africa, which I'm sure will also be worth arguing about. So that's why we're trying to bring this series together. And the idea is that we're having experts present 
their kind of brief thesis and argument so that they really get the chance to argue concisely what their point is and so that we can bring out the differences in discussion between those points. So I think the first one went well. Welcome any feedback from anyone else who's listened, but we're going to be going through at least through the, the rest of the summer with a few more in that series. Fantastic. I really think it's worth the watch and really important conversations. And I'll definitely be there for uh, the series. So let me thank my guests for joining us today. And we'll be back in two weeks. Thanks for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends, subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts or wherever you find good content. You can also check out our analysis and reports at csis.org slash Africa. Thanks. Thanks.